What was God doing before he created? When this question was posed to St. Augustine, he jokingly answered that God was preparing eternal punishment for people who ask such questions. The reason, the reasons why this question is flawed are multiple. First, before implies that God is governed by time. In reality, God is outside of time, and time is one of God's creatures. Time did not exist before creation. Second, it implies that when God created, somehow he changed. But because he is perfect and never changes, God did not begin to actually do anything. He always was and always is the same. A helpful analogy to understand how God created without himself being affected or beginning to do anything is imagine you're driving alongside a road. It's after a rainstorm, but the clouds have cleared and the sun is out. On the side of the road, there are higher places and lower places, and the sun's off to your left as you're driving. You see in the side, there's water accumulated at the lower parts of the side of the road, and there's no water on the higher parts. As you drive along, you see the sun reflecting in the puddle to your driver's seat, off to your left. When the sun is reflected, the water is present, but when the water disappears at the high parts, the sun disappears. In this analogy, the sun is God, and the reflection of God is the sun that we see in the puddle. That represents creation. So when we drive along the road and we see sometimes the reflection appear in the water and then disappear when the puddle disappears, the question is, what changes? Does the sun change, or does the puddle change? It's the puddle. The sun has done nothing. The sun always has been there. It's only the water on the side of the road that disappears or reappears again. This analogy is the best thing that we can find, the best thing I can find for now, in order to describe how God creates and yet is unaffected, how it's not God who changes, it's creation that comes from out of existence and comes into existence. It's creation that reflects God, and yet it's God who is unchanging. It's created things that are the things that change. Now, let's move to some aspects of the creed in order to better understand what we profess at each Mass. Each line of the creed combats a particular heresy. And it's surprising how many of these heresies are still around today in new forms. So let's begin. When we say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, we profess visible and invisible to combat the Gnostic heresy. The Gnostics believed in a God who created all spiritual, invisible things and is good. But another god called the Demiurge, who's a lesser god, who created material, visible things. This god who created material, visible things was evil. Gnosticism created all sorts of problems, many that still come up today. When we say we believe in one creator god of all things, we combat modern scientific materialism, which denies that there is any spiritual reality. It also combats the idea that matter is evil. 
as we see now with people treating the body as evil or all things pertaining to sexuality as evil, which is simply not true. It also defends against creation worship, the idea that the universe is God, or the paradox where some people hold that the body is an idol eating only the best health foods and exercising while ignoring the soul. But on the other extreme, others give one's body over to unbridled hedonism and lust, denying that man is anything more than an animal. When we hold that God created all things, both invisible and visible, we hold that all creation is good, including our souls and our bodies. When we say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, we profess that the Son became man, but existed from all eternity. It's amazing how many people still believe that the Son only existed once he took flesh in the Virgin Mary. Remember, Jesus Christ is God. I know that sounds like a simple statement, but at a previous parish where I once worked, when I asked all the kids in every RE class from kindergarten to eighth grade, is Jesus God? Over 40% said no. And some of, it, some of them gave the kid answer of no, enthusiastically. So we started to play the Trinity game. The Trinity game is very simple. The question is, who is the Father God? Who is the Son God? Who is the Holy Spirit God? Who is God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? And we played that until nobody could mistake the fact that the Son was God. Every now and then I'd throw a, uh, a wrench into things and say, who's Mary? You'd have to say, Mother of God. Those were for the advanced kids in fourth and fifth grade. But this is fundamental. It sounds simple to say Jesus Christ is God, and yet there's so many in our world who would deny it, and so many even within the church who would begin to question if Jesus Christ is God. So it's worth saying, again, Jesus Christ is God. When we say God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father. Although we say the Son was eternally begotten, he was never created and existed for all time. This one line of the creed probably defeats more heresies than any other line. It's fundamental, holding that Jesus Christ is God just as the Father is God. That word consubstantial, that changed in our creed. We used to say one in being with the Father, but then said consubstantial with the Father. It's actually from a Greek term, homoousios, meaning consubstantial or same substance. Not many people know this, but there were actually three types of Arian heresies. There were those who said homoousia, which is of like substance, homoian, which is the Son is like the Father, and anhomoian, the Son is unlike the Father. This one line defeats all of those heresies that said that Jesus Christ was not God in some way, shape, or form. In all of its varieties, this one line, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, consubstantial with the Father, is the most definitive declaration of Jesus' divinity. Now, why do we say true God from true God? Isn't God from God, light from light enough? The answer is, of course, no, because there were some Arians who would say, yes, we believe that Jesus is God, 
but only the Father is true God. It's like little kids, you try to put barriers on things. You don't have cookies before dinner. They start eating cookies. Why are you doing that? Because it's after lunch. Okay, that's not good enough. We have to have these barriers in order to establish exactly what's going on when we believe in Jesus Christ. True God from true God. I think as Christians, and including our Protestant brothers and sisters, we often take for granted how much blood and ink was spilled over these words, over this creed. This is why sola scriptura can't possibly work. Here's the number one reason why sola scriptura can't possibly work, scripture alone. The very texts that the Arians were using to argue that Jesus was not God are all in scripture. The Arians didn't use a single argument outside of scripture. They used especially the book of, not Wisdom of Solomon, sorry. I can't even think of it, I'm spacing on it now. That's all right. Um, they used the book of Proverbs about wisdom incarnate that said, wisdom poured forth at the first before the earth when there were no depths, wisdom was brought forth. When they read this line, they saw that wisdom was a created thing, and they said that Jesus Christ, the Son, was created at a certain point in time. It's only in the context of Christianity, this 300-year period, where the formula of the Trinity was actually articulated. The Trinity is not explicitly stated anywhere in Scripture. There's many implicit things and many things used to be proven that the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. And yet the Arians were using scripture to say that Jesus was not God. This is why tradition and the church is so important. It's not enough to have scripture. The church fathers, with the help of the Holy Spirit, was able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity only because of that presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. That promise that Jesus said, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Part of that is his abiding presence in the church for when we interpret scripture on our own, sometimes we can go astray. It took 300 years to explicitly spell out the doctrine of the Trinity, and we can't take that for granted. Now, why do we say through him all things were made. This reminds us that anything done outside of God is done by all three persons. This is one of those principles, if you take nothing else from this homily, I want you to remember two things. First, that Jesus is God. And second, that everything done by God outside of himself is done by all three persons. This is why when we baptize, we have to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Why is creator, redeemer, and sanctifier not good enough? Because creation is outside of God. So it doesn't actually signify the Father. It signifies all three persons. When we say God creates, it's the Father who creates through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. All three persons are part of this creative act. When we talk about redemption, it's the Son who died by the will of the Father through the working of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about sanctification, it's the Father and the Son sending the Holy Spirit upon the earth to make everything holy and pure. 
we cannot baptize in creator, redeemer, sanctifier because it simply does not talk about the Trinity. It refers to God, God, and God. We only baptize in the name of the three persons, which you can only do by signifying the names of those very persons. We also have to say that Jesus suffered death and was buried. It seems redundant and obvious, but there were actually heretics called the Docetists who said that Jesus only appeared to die on the cross, that there was a switcheroo at the last moment and some other person died, or he only appeared to die. This is, I know this is crazy, but this is what people were saying. This is why we have to say these words of the creed, because it actually happened. Jesus actually died. It doesn't matter that he was divine. He still died because of his human nature, because of his love for us. We also say he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Why do we add that line, his kingdom will have no end? There's actually another heresy called the modalist heresy, which stated that the son is only the father acting in a certain way. And they said at the end of time, the son would be absorbed once again back into the father, and the father would be king, and the kingdom of the son would end. So that line, his kingdom will have no end, referring to Jesus Christ, combats that very heresy that says the kingdom of the son will end. That's what the modalists touted. That was their line. Isn't it amazing to see how all these lines, which we take for granted, that we've been saying our entire life, all of these lines mean something for what we believe, who we believe that God is. It's a big deal. People died for this. People fought for this their entire life. Athanasius was exiled 14 times because he stood for the truth. I want to hit this idea that Jesus is God once more. If you hadn't gotten the idea, right? I, you can't just beat this dead horse enough because it's not dead, right? People still believe that Jesus Christ is not God. We face the problem of Arianism today. And part of this is because we've had decades of a mamby-pamby Jesus, right? Jesus is your friend, and you should just sit down and play guitars with him, and that's all who Jesus Christ is, right? I'm not saying we should not have friendship with Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Our salvation depends on it. But let's look at the book of Revelation for an image of who Jesus Christ is depicted in Scripture. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. He is clad in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. His voice is like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, followed him on white horses. From his mouth issued a sharp sword with which to smite the nations, and he would rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
If that image does not inspire in us adoration and worship, I don't know what other image in the scriptures would. Yes, Jesus is calling us to intimacy and friendship with himself, but we should never forget he is also the judge at the end of time, that he is a warrior with all the angels, all the armies of heaven at his beck and call, and that the justice and wrath of God will come at the end of time. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is our friend. We also have to be, believe he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Now, finally, we also assert that the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, that he is the same substance, just as the Father is God, the Son is God, so too is the Holy Spirit God. Now, why do we not say for the Holy Spirit, true God from true God, light from light, etc., etc., etc.? The Holy Spirit's divinity, when Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil the Great were dealing with this question, having seen all of the fallouts and the battles that Arianism brought about, establishing that God, that the Holy Spirit is God, just as the Father is God and the Son is God, it's all encapsulated in this one line, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. It was never explicitly problematic that the Holy Spirit was not God. So instead, they put this line in to not deal with all the same fallouts that Arianism had. Thanks be to God, the battle for the Holy Spirit being divine was not as hard fought as the Son being divine. In conclusion, now that we've shed some light on the lines of our creed, now that we greater understand the great battle to establish who God is in the nature of the persons of the Trinity, let us stand now and profess our faith that so many of our brothers and sisters have lived their whole life fighting for and died for, so that we may truly be called Christians, believing that one is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.